0: This week is a a little bit, um, it it was a little weird for me as I prepared this sermon. Um, As always, I I, I pray uh, that the Holy Spirit would be at work through these messages and and the preparation in doing so, but I feel feel like he was on a bit of overdrive this week in preparing this message for such a week as this. Um, I had much of this sermon written already uh, before the Uvalde shooting uh, left those 19 children and two teachers dead on Tuesday. Um, and these words that I'm about to read as we start were already uh, the opening words of my sermon, but I um, found them extra fitting uh, in light of what we have witnessed this week. Habakkuk 1, 2 4 says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. These are the words of the prophet Habakkuk beginning his book, his message, that toward the end of the Old Testament. And we're not looking at Habakkuk's story in depth this morning, but I wanted to point out uh, and bring these words to light because it's very clear here that Habakkuk, despite being a prophet, despite being devoted to the Lord, is mad at God. Not in the sense that he's turned away from Him, or he's cursed Him, or he's forsaken Him, but in his wrestling, Habakkuk is upset with God. Uh, The book of Habakkuk kind of um, is a look into Habakkuk's prayer life. And we see him wrestle with God because of the the issues around him. He feels like God has, in some senses, abandoned his people. Like God doesn't care that his people are about to be destroyed, that there is no justice, and suffering and evil are rampant and unchecked. And as I looked at those words, I think it's easy to feel these words, not just as letters on a page, but truly how many feel, in a lot of different cases, even now, thousands of years later. We began this series, What About Those?, uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, looking at kind of these tough issues of our faith. And so this morning, I want to ask the question, what about those who are mad at God? When we think about someone mad at God in our world today, uh, I think they're asking a lot of the same questions that Habakkuk was asking of God. I haven't done uh, in-depth, real research on this, but just anecdotally speaking, and those who I've encountered who are skeptical of the Christian faith or maybe outright atheists, many of them will cite the instances of evil and suffering in our world as evidences for why they don't believe. And so the reason they are mad at God is because of this question that's as ancient as the first year and as recent as the latest newscast. Why does God allow suffering to happen? Why does God particularly allow suffering to happen to, to good or innocent people? And I designed this sermon to be, um, kind of, to be able to answer those tough questions with friends and loved workers and loved, loved ones and co-workers, uh, the people who in our lives who maybe are struggling with these big issues of faith. And so uh, while we want to do that this morning, I want to revisit one of the caveats, the qualifications I brought up in the beginning of this series that you know, as we approach this issue of evil and suffering, uh, we recognize that few topics have been as contemplated among apologists and theologians and philosophers as maybe this one of evil and suffering. And so keeping that in mind, I want to, us to realize that it's very unlikely that I'll be able to answer all of those issues in this 25-minute time slot. And that's not even really my goal this morning. But I do want to help us get a, a handle uh, on this issue, to help our friends, to help those who are questioning uh, begin to wrestle with this, uh, in this issue in a healthy way. And I want to do that through uh, kind of three approaches this morning, looking uh, at this question philosophically, uh, looking at this question theologically, and looking at this question practically. The first, uh, from a kind of philosophical approach, um, the, I think the difficulty with suffering is not so much that it exists, but as a, how, how can it coincide with a God who says that He is good? The, the kind of problem of suffering and evil that is brought up so often in, in relation to how we wrestle with this for God is because of the character of God. We know that God is, by His nature, all-knowing and, and, and all-loving and all-powerful. There's theological terms for this, omniscient, all-knowing, omnibenevolent, all good, omnipotent, you know, all-powerful. These are some of the characteristics of who God is. And so what would follow, because of these characteristics of who God is, that He would want to do something about suffering. He would want to eliminate it. If God is all-loving, then He would want to eliminate that for us. We would think that because God knows how to eliminate suffering, being all-knowing and being all-loving, that maybe if, because He hasn't, He isn't all-powerful as He claims to be. God being all-loving and all-knowing and all-powerful, by that nature, we seem to think that evil should not exist. And so maybe because it does, God doesn't. And so because evil and suffering exist, maybe God doesn't want to eliminate it, which casts doubts on His goodness. Or maybe He doesn't know how to eliminate, which casts doubts on His knowledge. Or maybe He just simply isn't powerful enough. And so many come to this conclusion that Because suffering exists, then God must not, or at least if he does, he doesn't really seem to care enough to do something about it. But I think that we come to find when we really look at who God is in this issue of suffering, I think maybe the opposite is true. That what if suffering, instead of being evidence of God's apathy toward us, toward his creation, is actually evidence of his extreme love for us. I think of it this way, since having younger children... Uh, We watch a lot of Disney movies in our house and uh, even revisit some of the classics that I grew up with or maybe even you grew up with and there's a lot of stuff in there I didn't remember. I remember one of the the very first Disney movies, maybe you remember this, where Prince Charming comes across Snow White and he gives her that roofie to constantly keep her uh, sedated and in love with him. Uh, Or maybe you remember when uh, the prince finds Rapunzel in her tower and he determines that uh, he will keep her there so that she can love him alone and no one else. Do you remember those stories like that? Maybe. No, of course not. This is not how those love stories go, because that's not how love works. You see, forced love or coerced love isn't true love. And so God created created us with the hope and the purpose that we would choose to love him and have a relationship with him. But in doing so, God gave us two choices. That we, could, that we could love Him and serve Him. He could have formed us with no choice but to love Him, or formed us with the free will and ability to choose to love Him. And I think that if God would have created us without the choice of whether or not that we would love Him, He would have robbed us of much of what makes us who we are. But unfortunately, free will is often a two-edged sword. And we often choose the wrong edge. And because God has given the ability to choose him, we also have the ability to not choose him and to pursue evil, which often causes the suffering we see in our world. We know that free will is not free if we can only choose the good. And so God, likewise, does not prevent us from choosing evil. Suffering is often the price that we pay for this freedom to choose. But of course, we know that uh, suffering is not something that the Bible just deals with philosophically yes, through this issue, but it deals with in very real and practical ways. The, the Bible is not silent on this topic of suffering. And nowhere do I think that we see this idea of suffering more uh, than the book of Job. You might be familiar with Job's story. Uh, if you're not, kind of a brief recap. Satan approaches God after seeing the righteousness of Job. And, and Satan kind of makes this wager with God. He says, well, of course Job is righteous and he follows you. You have given him everything he ever wanted. He doesn't love the giver. He loves the gifts. And so let me take away all of these blessings and you will see how quickly he turns on you, God. And so in the span of just a few verses, we see Job lose nearly everything. Job 1 verse 13 Says one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put your servants to the sword uh, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robes and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. We see kind of these four hammer-like announcements of doom upon Job, that everything that has made him prosperous and important, everything that he has enjoyed through this life as gifts from God has been stripped away in an instant. And yet Job remains righteous. And so again, Satan accuses God. He says, well, he still has his health. Take away his good health, and he will curse you. And so God says, he's in your hands, but spare his life. And we know how the story continues, that Job his breaks into painful sores from head to toe. He is utterly destitute. He has lost all his riches, his livestock, his children, and now his health. And it's in this trial of Job's life that we see many of our questions and suffering, and questions and issues over suffering emerge. But here's the part of Job's story that is perhaps the most alarming for us. Job never is, is never given a reason for his suffering. He never, despite asking the question over and over again throughout his story, never receives the answer to the why question. He's never told, you know, because of your suffering, I have been vindicated. God never says that to him. He, he never says, you know, your model of endurance will change the way that people respond to suffering for the rest of time. And the truth is that we, likewise, may never find out the reason behind our suffering. We could say that suffering refines our faith, which it does, or that we should consider it pure joy when we endure trials, which we should. We can rest on the hope that one day suffering will be no more, which is true, but none of those messages are the message of Job's story. The message of Job's story is not why the righteous suffer. The message is that God is greater than we could possibly imagine, and He loves us more than we could believe. And when we hold on to these two truths, we can begin to embrace the idea that we may never receive an answer to the issue of why we suffer. Job, like I said, never gets an answer. After 30-something chapters of his friends accusing him of wrongdoing and Job defending himself, all the while wondering why God would allow him to go through this, finally Job gives him an answer, or God gives Job an answer, but not the one that he was expecting. Job 38, verse 1. Uh, God brings his uh, defense, if you will, to Job. But then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this? that obscures my plans with words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it. On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors that when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you Job, ever given orders to the morning, or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by, the, by that you might take the earth by its edges and shake the wicked out of it. The earth takes shape like clay under a seal, as features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their unpra- up, un, upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. What is the way to the abode of light, and where does the darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. I'll stop there, because this continues to go on for three more chapters. Job is never given an answer for the reason of his struggle. In fact, what God says to Job, simply, who do you think you are? Did you create the world? Do you sustain it? Do you have complete understanding of all the complexities of my creation? Yeah, I didn't think so. And it sounds harsh but it's also incredibly humbling as we come to realize that God is still God even when we don't understand Him. God is still God even when we don't agree with Him. And because God is God, He sees a bigger picture that we often don't understand. I'll go back to Job's story in just a minute, but before I do, I want to kind of share some ways to be practical with this issue of suffering and evil in our world. I want to kind of give three pieces of advice of how we can come alongside of someone pastorally and help them uh, endure in these times of suffering. First thing I can say and hope is that uh, we don't play the blame game. This is kind of the tactic of Job's friends throughout his saga. Like I said, for 30-something chapters, his friends come and implore him to repent of whatever big and, and hidden sin has brought this pain upon him. He said, you know, there must be some big sin that God is punishing. God wouldn't let a righteous person suffer. And while we might not frame it in such words, I think often we approach this idea of people suffering with this kind of karma idea. It must be because you did something bad that you're suffering in this way. Or if you just had more faith, then you wouldn't suffer. If you were just prayed more, done more, been more, then God wouldn't be punishing you. But what's even worse than that, I think, is that aside from this approach being pastorally insensitive and straight up wrong, it shows what we portray and what we understand about our understanding of God. This approach of the blame game is designed to keep us in control, to keep us in the driver's seat. That we know how God works so well that we know exactly what's behind someone's suffering. And, and in many ways, I think this belies that many of us want kind of a pocket-sized God. In this world where we have a remotes for everything, stereos and TVs and fans and computers and DVD players and toys, we, we want a remote-controlled God. His power at our fingertips, His control in our hand, which is the exact opposite of the message of Job. I think that times we who have been made in the image of God have tried to return the favor by understanding exactly why someone is suffering. And so we try to blame them or blame something going on. second way that I think we can help and, and shepherd in being pastoral when people suffer is to avoid simple answers. If you're anything like me, dealing with The suffering of other people is often more dealing with the the suffering of your own. I I don't always know quite what to say or or how to respond. I I admire those people that in those difficult moments always seem to have the right words in the times of hardship. And so often when this happens, when we don't have the right words, we don't know what to say, we kind of fall back on the old cliches that we've all picked up. You know, they're in a better place. It's just our time to go. Everything happens for a reason. God has something better in store. And it's not that these statements are wrong, but they're overly simplistic. I think they're insufficient to handle the complexities of suffering in the moments of deepest pain. Imagine this scenario. For some of you, it's not in the realm of imagination, but reality. Your spouse of 30 years has just died after a two-year-long battle with cancer. You've literally watched your strapping husband waste away to a shell. Your wife become too weak to move from bed to couch. And then the day you finally dreaded comes and they take their last breath. The whirlwind begins, a family stopping by and funerals being planned, obituaries being written. You've worried about your bills and your kids and how to make ends meet, how you'll continue on without your best friend of 30 years. But then at the funeral, someone comes up to you, pat you on the shoulder, Hey, we're just so sorry. Must have been their time to go. All of a sudden, your pain is gone. Your worries vanish. You're overwhelmed with feelings of comfort, right? No, you probably want to punch that person in the face. Don't try to dismiss the deepest of pains with 140 characters or less. Because here's the realities of dealing with suffering. Sitting in a nice church worship space discussing the problem of suffering is obviously different from struggling with the news that a loved one just died in a car accident. That's exactly the situation faced by prolific Christian author C.S. Lewis. After becoming convinced of the truth, the claims of Christianity, one of the first books that C.S. Lewis wrote was The Problem of Pain, meant to address this very issue of evil and suffering. And yet years later, his wife Joy would Die after a long period of suffering. And he would move from the philosophical to the reality. That he would understand and learn the painful truth of the personal problem of suffering. It would plunge him into a time of doubt and depression because now confronted with personal suffering. Philosophical arguments in his earlier book seemed to be of little help. This would lead him to write the companion book, A Grief Observed which has helped so many people deal with these issues. But it's not simply rely on simple answers as a substitute for genuine care for people. And the third way I think that we can help is to be present in the suffering. Sometimes the very best thing that we can do for someone going through a tough time is to simply be there for them. Not to answer questions or to rationalize through the problem, but just to be there and care to be there to pray with them and talk with them and laugh with them and sympathize with them. I think this is what Job's friends got wrong. When Job went through all this, his friends showed up, but instead of just being quiet and being there and resting with him and being in that moment in the suffering, they began to offer all these simple answers, offer all of these blames, and they could have just been there for him. You see, ultimately, the reason that we want to be present in the suffering of others is because God came down to be present in ours. The reason that your friend or your loved one is probably so angry with God when this issue of evil and suffering comes up is because they probably think of him as out there somewhere, uncaring about what we're going through. But in Jesus, we have a God who cared so much about our suffering. He would come down to experience it for himself, that he could rescue us from it. Hebrews 4:15 says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus is that bridge between God and man, because he is the one who experienced both. Holy God, fully man experienced the sufferings of what we endure and made a way out of it. Let me return to Job's story for just a second. When we think of Job's story, I think we tend to think of it as an issue of suffering, which it is. But we also forget that it is, in some senses, a happily ever after. After God questions him, Job's love for God has been tested and refined. His character has been vindicated and he receives back everything he lost times two. A thousand ox, a thousand donkeys, 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels. God blesses him with ten more children, seven sons and three daughters. All seems right in Job's world. But the solution to our suffering is a much greater one than just that. Much greater than that things might just turn out better someday. Because even if God doesn't give us back what we lost, He gives us something much better. He gives us Himself. In chapter 9, as Job voices one of the biggest issues with suffering, he says, He, God, is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job says, if only there was someone who could bridge this gap, Between me and the God of the universe. In 10 chapters later, in Job 19, he understands the solution to his problem. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And that's what God did. That Jesus would come and stand on the earth to be our Redeemer. To be that mediator. To be the one that bridges the gap. To mediate between us to bring us together, to remove God's rod from us. That It is impossible for God to suffer. He is holy and righteous and incompatible with decay and sin and death, and so God became one of us here in our suffering. To endure every aspect of the human experience spiritually, he was subject to temptation and subject to obedience. Emotionally, he is subject to agitation and anger, yet also joy and love. Physically, he sweat and spit and wept and bled and eventually died. He was rejected by his people and ultimately sent to the cross, the epitome of suffering. In Jesus, God is not unaware or unfamiliar with our suffering. And we can trust that God will make it right, as he already has. The suffering of the cross makes way for the victory of the resurrection. In just a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to respond in a number of ways. Maybe for you, the response to this issue of suffering is to respond to this God who stands in the gap. to enter into a relationship with Jesus, the God who looked down and saw our suffering and cared enough to come down and share in it with us. A God who would rather die than be without you. And if you respond with your life in this way, or you already have responded with your life in this way, Of course, I can't promise you that you won't suffer. God doesn't promise you that you won't suffer. I can't promise you that you'll know why when it happens. I can't promise you that you'll receive back what you lost in the suffering. But what I can promise, because the Word of God promises, is that when we suffer with Christ at the cross, we will live with Christ in the resurrection. This is our hope. This is our joy. This is our assurance. That in the deepest and darkest of moments, we have the hope of Jesus. God who came down, show us his love. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this week. And we live in a world that is present always with suffering. But especially this week, in light of last several weeks of senseless acts of violence or suffering or issues of evil. God, it is new and afresh within us. I uh, wonder why this issue, these issues prevail, these issues occur, why evil and suffering is allowed to exist. For those of us who place our trust in you, we know that you are sovereign. We know that you are in control. We know that you are good. But for many that we interact with in a daily way, maybe a family member, a friend, or coworker, or someone that we know deeply and intimately they don't have this assurance and they maybe are mad at you, upset with you for this issue. God, in those moments, help us to communicate well that you are a loving God. That you have given us the opportunity to respond to that love freely. And often that free will leads to evil. God, help us to look at Job's story and realize that even in the midst of suffering, maybe we won't receive all the answers and God, to be okay with that. Most of all, maybe, to be in those moments where people are suffering around us and not bring about trite statements or or easy paths to try to push their suffering away, but to deal with it, wrestle with it, sit there in them with it. To love them as you have loved us. To be present for them as you have been present for us. God, we thank you for your goodness and your love. That even when we, so, we see so much going wrong in the world around us, we rest on the hope of who you are and what you have done for us. We rest in the hope of his atoning work on the cross, the beautiful glory of the resurrection. I pray this in Jesus' name.